Hi and welcome to the next conference podcast. I'm your host Alex Jacobi and I'm standing right in front of Schmitz Tivoli where the next 18 conference is taking place. I'm very happy to present the very first opening keynote talk from Andrew Keen, which took place yesterday at the next conference. So enjoy Andrew's very inspirational keynote talk. So you're a curated audience, right? You're all very wise. No riffraff off the streets out there. No uh, people of the night here. How smart are you all? Stick up your hand if you're smart. <laughs> Shouldn't be laughing at that. You should. So, so most of you aren't. Most of you, uh, only about 10% of people stuck their hand out. Maybe you maybe need to be warmed up a bit. Um, so great minds think alike. Uh, next is focusing on fixing digital. Um, coming out with a book, too late of course, mine's already out. Uh, Germans always come second. Uh, although to be fair, they're very good at coming second in re-engineering things. Sometimes it's good to be second. Americans always think it's good to be first, but like in those cartoon films, when you win, you lose, and when you lose, you win. Um, but both uh, Next and I... By the way, can you put the, can you put the uh, timer on? Because otherwise I have no idea of how much time. Yeah? Timer? I didn't bring my phone up. Um, anyway, uh, otherwise I'll just talk all day, uh, and then there won't be anyone left. So... Uh, Both uh, Next and I are thinking alike. We're thinking about fixes, which of course means that something's gone wrong because when you fix something, it means it's broken. Um, uh, uh, Next is talking about... Um oh, oh, thank you. It's up there. Uh, I thought I could cheat a bit and steal some extra time. Um, Next is thinking about fixing digital. I've just written a book called How to Fix the Future, out in German. Of course, you should all be buying it and reading it, uh, both in English and German, by both books. They're both excellent. Uh, <laughs> I can't vouch for the German translation. By the way, my last book, uh, the one before this, was called uh, The Internet is Not the Answer. And the Germans, because they're very subtle in these things, translated it as Der Digital Debacle. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, don't know what, what the I don't know what the translation of this one will be. Uh, anyway, uh, so we're, all, we're, we're, we're focused on fixes. We, we both agree something's broken. I say the future's broken, digital's broken. It's basically the same thing because, of course, the future is digital. Digital is changing every industry, as you all know, as you will hear at events like this, as I'm sure you'll hear today from... You know, transportation to hospitality to healthcare to, to finance to government. Uh, AI, blockchain, uh, quantum, all these things are dramatically altering the world. So again, you're a curated audience. Let's do another bit of interactivity here. Um, how many of you think that the future does indeed need fixing? How, do you, how many of you believe that digital is broken? Not necessarily irredeemably broken, but broken in part. Now you're warming up. Now you're on my side. 
Um, how many of you don't? How many of you think that digital is perfect and that there's no need for any kind of fixes? You shouldn't be here then, right? Because this is about <laughs> fixing the future. Only two of you. So the rest of you all believe something's gone wrong. So what is it that's gone wrong? This will be uh, the theme of this conference, uh, the how to fix the future, the digital fix. I've been writing about this stuff now, some of you know, for almost 15 years. In 2007, uh, and, and I've written a trilogy of books before this, which perhaps I think outlines all the problems with what's happened with digital. It's important to remember, by the way, uh, and you Germans know the unintended nature of history, that there is no um, Hegelian force at the heart of this um, manifesting its will. Much of what's happened is unintended. Uh, there are no evil people in this. I'm not going to suggest that anybody, even Mark Zuckerberg, is evil. Maybe stupid, naive, childish too rich, blah, blah, but not evil. So there's no conspiracy here. I'm not Trumpian in that sense. Trump, of course, uh, I, sh I shouldn't have mentioned his name, but I will from time to time. Um, so when I say that something's gone wrong, it doesn't mean that there's something intrinsically wrong with digital, and it doesn't mean that there's some evil figure at the heart of it plotting to how, how digital can take over the world. But nonetheless, something's gone wrong. I've been around Silicon Valley actually since the mid-90s. I founded a company called Audio Cafe in the mid-90s. And right at the beginning, when we all were stumbling around San Francisco, intoxicated with digital, intoxicated with the idea of re-architecting the future, of fixing history, remember, back in the mid-90s, we were at the end of history. Now we're back at the beginning. Um, we all believed, not only that we were at the end of history, that digital would enable the end of history. It would democratize. It would free us from traditional monopolies, traditional elites. It would create jobs, it would spread wealth, it would be, in many respects, that kind of utopian cornucopia represented in, in traditional utopian texts from the Communist Manifesto to Thomas More's Utopia. We, of course, were wrong, like all utopians, like all believers in the future, and it became increasingly clear to me that there was something wrong with what was going on during the Web 2.0 revolution, which began probably with the foundation of Google in, what, 1997, 1998, and which uh, became powerful in reshaping Silicon Valley. It was the first real internet revolution in about 2001, 2002, 2003. It was, of course, and we've heard this word, curation. It was all about doing away with curation. It was all about democratizing content. It was all about opening the world up to different voices. And I wrote a book in 2007 called Cult of the Amateur. I acknowledge that that wasn't a bad thing, that one shouldn't take away the tools of creativity from ordinary people, like the people wandering around drunk at night on the Reeperbahn. But I did warn about the implications of this. I warned that if you did away with curators, you're also doing away with a kind of acknowledged truth. So already in 2007, I was suggesting that there could be a crisis of fake news. Now, not even I was as prescient to, 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 uh, to, 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 to uh, 
uh, predict either Trump or Putin or Putin's how, uh, professional trolls in St. Petersburg or Moscow, but I understood and I warned about the problems, the vulnerabilities of this kind of system. When everyone has a tool, when anyone can express themselves, then who should we trust? What happens to truth? Where are we going to really rely on our understanding of the world? I also, in Cult of the Amateur in 2007, warned about this new economy. Now, the Googles and Facebooks and YouTubes of this world, which we all use and we all love, are predicated on a revolutionary business model, the business model of free. They give their products away. We don't pay to use YouTube or Google or Facebook. And their business model is built on aggregating our data and then selling advertising around their data. So Google, almost a trillion dollar company, Facebook, a, a three quarters of a trillion dollar company, are all premised on selling advertising. Their profits, their revenues are 95, 96% advertising. What I warned in Cult of the Amateur is that we, or you, were being turned into the product. I suggested then that this new business model was a kind of surveillance capitalism. We were being watched, so free wasn't free. In 2012, I wrote a book called Digital Vertigo, which was a critique of social media. I argued that social media actually wasn't very social. It reflected the increasing individualization of society. It diminished and disorientated and atomized us. Social media then was creating loneliness. It was separating us from one another. And it was addictive in its narcissistic quality. And we know now in America, at least, we have a narcissistic president, the first real internet president. Forget about Obama. It's Trump who's the first true digital president because all the forces that have brought him to power and define him reflect our internet age. Just read Digital Vertigo. Um, this, uh, this, this social media world, I argued, was addictive and intoxicating. It was like staring into a mirror. The more we stared into it as narcissists, the more intoxicated and addicted we became particularly given the nature of this technology. Then in 2015, I wrote a book called uh, The Internet is Not the Answer, in which I argued that in spite of all the well-intentioned nature of internet entrepreneurs and all the idealistic talk about distribution and a de-centered economy, a networked world, a culture of the edge, the real result of, the, the real economic result of the digital revolution was centralization. The real result was a winner-take-all economy. Again, it didn't take a genius to figure that out. All you've got to do is look at your stock price. All you've got to do now is recognize that Apple and Amazon are now trillion-dollar companies, that Google is about to become a trillion-dollar company, that they dominate their, 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 their markets, that Facebook is, only the, is the only real uh, social media company. So a winner-take-all economy actually undermines competitiveness. It creates a monopolistic culture and situation where it's harder and harder for entrepreneurs to actually invent new ideas. And the only outs and the only investors increasingly become the monopolists themselves. 
Uh, I also argued in the internet's not the answer that this kind of technological innovation was all very well and very exciting in many ways, but with AI on the horizon, maybe even more than on the horizon, actually becoming increasingly real, jobs themselves were going to become the next deeply vulnerable sphere uh, of the digital revolution. Now, it doesn't mean that AI will destroy all jobs, but what I point out in the internet's not the answer, and again, I'm certainly not the first or the last or the only person to be suggesting this, is the digital revolution doesn't take, doesn't create jobs. It undermines jobs. And whether it's the AI that replaces menial work in fast food restaurants or taxi cabs with self-driving cars, or whether it's an increasingly sophisticated AI that's smart enough to replace physicians and doctors and accountants, marketers, maybe even authors and public speakers, most of us are going to experience a great deal of pain similar kind of pain to what happened in the Industrial Revolution in the middle of the 19th century. I argued in The Internet's Not the Answer, and again, I'm not alone in arguing this, this isn't the first time it's happened. We've seen this before. Great a, a great age of disruption, a promise of cornucopia, a promise of jobs and equality, replaced by increasing disparities of wealth and power, economic resources being, uh, be, being centered increasingly in a tiny group of people, generally in an area, whether it was London or Manchester, and now Silicon Valley. We've seen it before. This is not unique. Silicon Valley people will tell you, and you may have speakers here say, it's the first time it's ever happened in history. Anyone who said that should be struck down immediately. Lightning. Because it shows they're profoundly ignorant. They've never read a history book. Never happened before. Everything's happened before. You Germans know that better than anyone. It has happened before. It doesn't mean we've had AI before. It doesn't mean we've had Google or Facebook or Apple. But these big companies, these forces, this undermining of traditional unemployment, this inequality, these new business models that uh, undermine who we are as human beings. So what are we going to do? I spent 15 minutes outlining the problem. I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes outlining fixes. I have five fixes in my book, and there's an Uber fix. I come up with what I like in my book. The one thing in, my, in, in this latest book that I'm really proud of is I come up, it's a bit cheesy, but I like cheesy stuff. Um, I come up with the concept of Moore's Law. Now, we all know Moore's Law. Gordon Moore, the founder, the co-founder of Intel, uh, who came up with his scientific law that suggested that the processing power of computer chips will double every 18 months. That's the thing that's driving this revolution. That's the thing that's enabling Bitcoin and AI and smartf uh, smartphones and all the rest of it. That's the thing that is the real disruptor, the real dynamic, the engine, the motor at the heart of this digital revolution. But I come up with an alternative Moore's Law. Instead of Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, who came up with his law in 1965, I borrow uh, a, a, an earlier law from a book called Utopia, written by an Englishman called Thomas Moore. Um, and what I argue, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Moore's Utopia, it's a brilliant book, a really 
relevant book today. Many of the themes that he brings up are as contemporary as they were in the 16th century. It was written 500 years ago. What I argue, or my takeaway from Moore, in terms of his vision of utopia, is I argue it was a political tract. He was writing at a time of equally great disruption, a time where we were rediscovering or reinventing ourselves as human beings, even more dramatically than today. In Moore's time, in Thomas More's time, we were discovering the painful reality that the earth doesn't uh, that the universe doesn't revolve around the Earth. Now, unfortunately, there are some people, particularly in the White House today, who still believe that. Uh, you laugh, but it's true. Uh, that's the consequence of narcissism. But in Moore's age, of course, the uncertainties of his age were, and again, for a German audience, you don't need me to remind you of this, they became captured in the great debate between Protestants and Catholics about the nature of the world and the nature of religion. The Protestants, particularly the Lutherans, believed in something called predestination. They believed in such an infinite God that we were essentially powerless, that what will be will be, que sera, sera. Of course, Marx took this up later in the 19th century in terms of his theory of historical determinism. What I love about Thomas More, and he's certainly not an idyllic figure, you can accuse him of all sorts of things, but what I like about More in his utopian, it was written, I think, as an answer to Luther and Lutheranism, what Moore was reminding people in Utopia is that we as human beings have agency. We determine our own fate. We are humanists, or, or Moore's Utopia, in my interpretation, is a key central humanist track written against predestination. And I think that's what we need, and that's my notion of Moore's law. Thomas More was reminding us that we are masters of our history, or whatever time of disruption. Only we can shape our futures. Only we can reinvent our institutions. Only we can create justice in this world. And I think that's the thing we need to remember above all else in today's age of great disruption, of uncertainty of AI. There are some people who say, well, AI is going to create such smart algorithms that they will replace us, that we will be enslaved. I don't believe that's the case. I believe still that the 21st century can indeed be a renaissance of humanism in spite of all this technology, indeed because of this technology. So if we have a meta-theme in terms of fixing the future. It is bound up in Moore's law, in remembering who we are, in remembering our power, our ability to shape our own histories, to make our societies. If we lie back and think of England or Silicon Valley or Germany, we lose. There are these huge powers, whether it's China or Russia or Facebook or Google or Apple, there were these huge powers which often make many of us feel powerless, that many of us feel we cannot make a difference. If we believe that, we lose. And if we fall into the trap of technological determinism by arguing that Moore's law, that Gordon Moore's law will create such an inevitable nature of technological futurism and technological development that we can't make any difference, we lose. That's why we have events like this. That's why people like me write books as I do. That's why we have these kinds of conversations. So Moore's law is the 
meta theme in the book. It's the thing that we need to remind ourselves of. And it's not just my term. The woman who invented software, a brilliant Victorian mathematician called Ada Lovelace, who was the business partner, and much smarter actually than uh, Charles Babbage, the inventor of the first mechanical uh, uh, com uh, computer. Uh, Lovelace was the daughter of Lord Byron, a remarkable woman on many fronts. She recognized this right from the beginning when she came up with the idea of software. What she said famously in the middle of the 19th century is software can't think for itself. That software will always need to be told what to do by us. So we are the masters. We are shaping the narrative. We are telling the story. That's what we need to remind ourselves of. That's what AI is. AI will never, certainly not in the next 100 or 200 years, acquire its own consciousness. So if that humanism, Moore's law, is the meta theme, let's look more concretely at what we can do. There is no, and by the way, Silicon Valley is always very good at coming up with apps and simple solutions, but there is no app to fix the future. There is no simple way. There is no fix, no one company, no one technology. You may have a guy like Don Tapscott, I like Don a lot, but Don, if he was here, would tell you, well, the way to fix the future is with blockchain. Don was the guy who said back in 1997, the way to fix the future is the internet. And in 20 years, there'll be another technology. Blockchain offers great opportunity, but also great problems. And indeed, blockchain in many respects is the internet compounded, the internet on spelkers. So, what do we do? There are five key categories that I introduce in my book. Think of it like a technology stack, the pieces of technology behind a product. These five uh, these five tools interact, they're not pure, they often sort of uh, melt and, and, and spill over into one another. But they are key and they're not new, they've always been the same. The first is regulation. We cannot forget the value of regulation. This is indeed where Europe has become so important. Uh, Americans like to remind Europeans that they don't innovate. They're wrong. Americans are wrong about most things. Um, are there any Americans here? <laughs> Hope not. Um, although some people think I'm American, I'm never quite sure. It depends who I'm talking to. Um, but of course, it's the Europeans who are innovating when it comes to regulation. The way to create a truly innovative economy, and this was articulated to be by Margaret Vestager, who I interviewed for my book, I have a whole chapter about that conversation, is by leveling the playing field. So what Vestager is doing in Europe, fining Apple $14 billion for not paying its taxes, launching three separate antitrust investigations on Google, today announcing that they're launching also an antitrust investigation of Amazon and rethinking the very nature of antitrust law. This is essential because the Americans are doing nothing. Obama was a disaster in this sense. He was controlled by Google and Silicon Valley. 
He fell for it. He was seduced by the digital utopianism articulated by people like Eric Schmidt. That doesn't mean that I, I don't like Obama or admire him, but his digital policy was disastrous. There's no antitrust initiatives in America. No attempt to create, for example, a GDPR, a, a Digital Protection Act, which will enable people to cart their own data around with them and empower people like you over these companies. That's what the Europeans are doing. The Europeans are also making these platforms accountable, particularly the Germans. They are fining Facebook anytime anyone uh, publishes something on, 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 the, on their platform which is illegal or offensive and which uh, a newspaper or a television company would be fined for. They are treating these platforms which have been sort of excuses for printing money, they've been treating them as traditional media companies. Because of uh, a problem with the law in the US, the Digital Millennium Act of 1998, the so-called Fair Harbor clause in this, allowed these companies to make huge money from user-generated content, but not be responsible. So what the Europeans are doing, and the German government, and Brussels, uh, is making these companies accountable. They are leading in this. Now in America, there's more and more talk of antitrust. Now in America, there's more and more talk of a, 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 a data protection act. Regulation is essential. It was essential in the, in the Industrial Revolution. Without regulation in the Industrial Revolution, we wouldn't be able to go outside. The air would be so smoggy. We wouldn't be able to eat because the food was poisonous. We wouldn't be able to organize our labor because unions were illegal. 11-year-olds would still be working in factories. So regulation, whatever you hear from the uh, from, from, from the utopian libertarians of Silicon Valley who want government not involved because they profited so massively from government's dysfunctionality in the US, uh, don't listen. Regulation matters, but also innovation matters. We need new business models. We need entrepreneurs to come up with products, apps, um, platforms that actually respect Consumers, because they're not at the moment in many respects. Take Facebook and Google. These are deeply exploitative companies, mining our data, the so-called oil of, of the digital age. They are exploitative. Doesn't make them evil, but they're certainly not good. Doesn't make them worse than big chemical companies or big armament companies or Wall Street, but it makes them equivalent. Their business model doesn't work. Data needs to be owned by consumers, and these companies need to be respectful of, these, of, of, um, of, uh, of, of, of their users. At the moment, they're not. I, I use a couple of um, analogies from, uh, from, from other industries. The food industries, for example, which in the middle of the 19th century began with products that were deeply harmful and exploitative to humans, has changed dramatically over the last 150 years. You can have high-quality products and indeed expensive products and still have a viable economy. Or take the automotive industry. In the 50s, the American car industry, which is equivalent in many ways to Silicon Valley today, was so dominant that they produced death traps on wheels. Ralph Nader wrote a book in 1965 called Unsafe at Any Speed, 
which revealed how dangerous American cars were, and German car manufacturers and Japanese manufacturers took advantage of this by producing cars which reflected the interests of its users. So this can be done. I have lots of examples of the book, but it needs to be done in terms of putting the consumer first. At the moment, Silicon Valley isn't putting the consumer first. That's where German re-engineering prowess, the ability of German companies to rethink capitalism, to rethink the market, to rethink products, that's where it can be very valuable. So innovation is also as important as regulation. We need more consumer power. We need consumers to articulate their interests. At the moment, consumers are mute. They're feeling powerlessness. We saw the beginnings of this with a delete Facebook movement. I think it will begin with younger people, with the so-called digital natives. They are fleeing Facebook, not only because it's distasteful, not only because it's unfashionable, not only because it's only their grandparents who are left on it, but because they know how exploitative it is. They know how they're being bombarded, and they're increasingly recognizing that Facebook resulted in Donald Trump winning the election, that Facebook is dominated by lies and has become the mechanism for fake news. But consumers need to organize, as they organized in terms of turning away from American cars or choosing to buy high-quality food and not be poisoned, or turning away, as they're beginning to do, from, far, uh, from, 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 from fizzy drinks. Consumers need to articulate their interests. They can't just rely on entrepreneurs, and they can't rely on regulators. So innovation, regulation, consumer power, citizen power, of course, is also key. Citizen power is essential to this. Uh, citizen power is essentially Moore's law. Whether it's the citizens organizing to protect Uber drivers to make sure they're given a proper wage, whether it's musicians making sure that companies like Spotify pay them properly. We all have a role as citizens. We all do work whether it's as musicians or artists or business people or marketers. So citizenship and the responsibility and challenge of citizenship in the digital age comes back to us. You can't expect other people to do a work. One of the, the great challenges of citizenship in the early part of the 20th, 21st century is architecting a better digital age, because this stuff's only going to become bigger, more powerful more disruptive, whether it's AI or quantum or Bitcoin, all these things are radically transforming every industry. But we need to elect politicians who reflect our interests. We need to elect politicians who focus on these issues and aren't in the pay of large Silicon Valley companies. And finally, education is key. I end on education. It's a kind of mushy term. And it's easy to get lost in it. I sometimes joke that when we do these kind of conversations, always at the end people say, yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff to do. It's all about education, which basically means we have no idea how to fix it. And we shove it off to the schools and the teachers, already overworked and underpaid, particularly in the US and I think in Europe. But education, I think, is key in a fundamental sense. We need to re and this comes back to Moore's law, this comes back to AI and the great challenge of the 21st century. Our education system in the industrial age was shaped around the needs of an industrial society, of educating, and Michel Foucault writes very well about this, of educating and disciplining a workforce and a citizenship that would be able to cope 
in an industrial society, a top-down society, a society based on orders and hierarchy. This digital world is different. The fundamental reality of the digital world is that the algorithm will replace most of what we do. As I said, not only cab drivers and fast food workers, but lawyers and doctors. But it doesn't mean it will, re it will replace us entirely. There is that key gray area, the essence of a future humanism, uh, a rebirth, Renaissance 2.0, if you like, what the computer can't go. Creativity, empathy, the ability, for example, not necessarily for a doctor to identify a disease, but be able to talk to a patient. Algorithms can't talk to a patient. Algorithms really can't give this kind of speech. Algorithms can crunch numbers, they can create a big data world, but the essence of what it means to be human is to put it in a language which can't be quantified. A language which is not only unquantifiable, but immediate, accessible, meaningful without being mathematical. That's where the algorithm can't go. And that's where we need to focus on education. So at the end of my book, again, coming back to the German theme, I introduce my readers to Waldorf schools, uh, founded by a guy called Ro Rudolf Steiner in Vienna at the, after the First World War, which focused on what it means to be human, not learning stuff off by heart, training us to be creative, training us to exist in that area outside the algorithm, indeed to compete with the algorithm. So we need to rethink education, not only in terms of lifelong education and all these other cliches that you'll hear at e-learning conferences, but something more profound. We're living in remarkably disruptive and exciting times. We can't fall back on cosmetic solutions and we can't fall back on the solutions which existed in the industrial age. It's up to you. That's what Moore's Law is. I can try to inspire you. I can write books. Others can write books. Politicians like Margaret Vestager can take on these big companies. Entrepreneurs can create new products. Consumers can challenge old products. But ultimately, it's up to you as citizens, as humans. Only you will shape your future. That's Moore's law, so it's up to you. You know what you've got to do. Now go and do it. Thank you. That was Andrew Keane's keynote on the next conference 2018. If you like this podcast, go to iTunes, subscribe, because we will release one talk every week. And do us a favor, rate the next conference podcast with five stars and leave a comment. We're happy to hear from you. Talk to you next week. The next conference podcast is presented by Sonabird.io. Sonabird is the easiest way to publish your podcast or use your own voice to record a flash briefing for voice assistants like Amazon Alexa or Google Home. For more information, go to Sonabird.io.